0: Welcome to the RSA events podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Anthony Painter. I'm director of the Action and Research Center here at the RSA. And I'd like to welcome you all to today's special event taking place in honor of Professor David Markand, whom we're delighted to have with us today. Um, Before we begin, can I ask you to check your mobile phones and switch to silent. Uh, We're filming and live streaming today's event. So welcome to everybody joining us online. Um, and if you'd like to contribute to the discussion on Twitter, a reminder that the hashtag is hashtag RSAProgress. Can there be any better moment to have this discussion? <laughs> kind of an obvious thing to say. <laughs> I always wondered what a bona fide constitutional crisis would look like. Uh, we may well be in one. By the way, keep us updated throughout the event if anything does happen in the next, next few minutes. Um, uh, The moment of crisis is is clear, but our political leaders seem desperately short of ideas and the right leadership, and David Markin's writing is fertile territory, to say the least. His love of democracy, the good common life, internationalism, and social justice seem more essential than ever. Uh, Everyone on this panel has been influenced deeply by his thinking, myself included. Um, And everyone has their favourite Markham book. Um, Mine, as it happens, is is one that may be um, slightly more obscure than many of them, but Britain since 1918. And in this, um, David um, preserved the place for democratic republicanism in recent history. So important. And I I, I took this as a cue to map out some ideas, as many have, um, about what a modern democratic republicanism might look like in a book a few years back. Um, and this week, the Actual Research Centre here at the RSA has um, published ideas for a 21st century enlightenment. It's infused with the republicanism, liberalism, democracy, and yeah. social democracy um, that you find in David's thinking. Deliberative democracy, devolution, education to help um, empower the sophisticated um, citizens of the future, and greater economic security. There are Copies at the back afterwards, if you'd like to grab a copy, it's on our website. Um, But it's David's brilliant writing and ideas that we're here to explore today. Um, And these ideas are are mapped out in in his excellent collection of essays, um, Making Social Democrats. David, of course, needs no introduction, but in true form, I'll introduce him anyway. Um, He's Honorary Distinguished Professor at the School of Law and Politics at Cardiff University. Uh, and former principal of Mansfield College, Oxford. Um, he's a former parliamentarian at Westminster and author of nine books on British history, politics, and political economy. Um, Hans Shuttle, to David's right, is Professor of Political Science at Yonsei University in Seoul. Uh, He's written widely on citizenship and democracy and co-edited the book that we're here to um, explore David's writings through today. And Neil Lawson, uh, to my left, is director of Compass, um, which is an organisation dedicated to strengthening democracy and building a more equal, sustainable society. Um, Neil is also one of the contributors to making Social Democrats. Now, our fourth panel member, Liz Kendall, MP is unfortunately unable to be with us today. Uh, I'm sure some of you may be aware that there's a Brexit statement happening um, in Parliament. Uh, Liz, of course, has to be present uh, for that. Um, she sends her apologies. She was desperate to be here, and we, we had a whole sort of exchange over the last day or so. Um, but we're very sorry not to have us with us. Um, as a, she's a politician who, who I know, certainly from her leadership campaign and beyond, was influenced by the progressive values and ideas and prized in David's work. So David, Hans and Neil join us today to share their reflections um, on the place of social democracy in society today. I'll ask each of them for some opening remarks. Um, We'll have a short follow-up conversation um, after that. And then, of course, we'll be opening it out to um, the floor um, for their um, thoughts and questions after that. So that's enough for me for now. Um, Let's get started. I'm going to hand straight over to David.
2: Well, thank you. Um, I'm afraid I don't bring much for your comfort. Um, if you read this book, you'll see that one of the things that people say about me is that I'm always looking at the dark side. <laughs> I mean, I refuse to be carried away by excessive uh, optimism. Actually, I am basically an optimistic person. At least I think I am. But anyway, I want to say one thing first, and um, I hope it won't embarrass her. This is, would have been totally impossible, all of these things, without my wife Judith. My debt to her is inordinate, it really is. (laughs) Anyway, I want to start by saying that um, I think social democracy, in virtually any sense of the term, and of course it's lots of of, uh, different ways of looking at it, is now in crisis. Um, I think... There are two halves, if you like, to social democracy. There's social and there's democracy. And um, we tend to think of social democracy as though it was one portmanteau term. But I think the democracy part of social democracy is now really in very, very serious crisis across the developed world uh, as well as in other, uh, other regimes. Um, if you look at... Um, Trump in America, you look at uh, what's he called again? Bolsonaro, is it? Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, the Law and Justice Party in Poland, the Freedom Party in Austria, um, this, and Brexit, actually, in this country. Or, or I didn't I say, I thought I said Orban, Orban in, in Hungary. It's a pretty grim scene that we see. Now, I think we, this forces us to be um, rather, how can I put it, tough-minded about the role of social democracy. Um, Wales voted to leave, right? It has been run by the Labour Party um, really since what, Ken will know, probably since about 1930, maybe even longer. It's been the dominant party in Wales. If you look at the Welsh mining valleys, which is where the leave vote principally came from, they have been neglected, uh, let down, they feel alienated from the establishment, which has been a Labour Party, social democratic establishment. And, uh, I mean, I won't... I think um, Neil has probably heard this before, but I'm I'm not going to go into it in great detail. Some time ago, Judith and I went to a meeting, oddly enough, by the Welsh uh, branch of the RSA in Pontypris, which is in the heart of the Rhondda Valley, right? The Rhondda Valley is where the... In a way, modern Wales was created, this so is where the first great deep pit was sunk in the Ronda Valley. We went there and we um, found, we were, it was a meeting of the RSA and they had what they called social entrepreneurs and they were very nice people. All of them were wanting to do the best by their community um, and they were totally, totally, totally switched off from every institution of politics and government. They thought the Welsh government was awful, they thought the London government was awful, they thought the local authority was awful. And I I mean it was it was it they were very nice people. This is this is the point. Uh, one of the people, one of the a young woman there um, said to me, she was a very attractive young woman, she said, when I go to Cardiff, which is only a few miles away. I feel stigmatised because of my Rhondda accent. That's extraordinary. And now that this, this uh, sense of alienation of being betrayed, actually, uh, by the social democratic labour establishment in Wales, I think helps to explain the fact that the local authority area in which Pontypridd is found uh, voted overwhelmingly for leave. And... Um, The same thing, of course, applies in uh, large parts of England, too. Similar places. And apparently, in Pontepriths, in England, too. Um, I used to represent a mining constituency in Nottinghamshire. That voted Leave overwhelmingly. (laughs) Mansfield, which was next door to Ashfield, I think now has a Conservative MP. These things, this is a kind of revolution against the dominant social democratic establishments of all these countries. So, um, why has this happened and what can we do about it? I think the problem really is that, um, well, I I don't know the answer, of course. I never do know the answer. But I think the um, thought has come into my mind. It comes from Yeats's poem, marvelous poem, The Second Coming, The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Just think about that. The best lack all conviction. I mean, in this sense, David Cameron was one of the best, sort of. Um, You know, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, I suppose, is a sort of sort of one of the best. Uh, The passionate intensity. Was, the, was, was, was in the Brexit camp. And that is, I think, where we are now. Um, a long time ago, some of you are maybe old enough to remember the famous soundbite of uh, Tony Blair. Apparently it was actually thought of by Gordon Brown. <laughs> At least that's what he says in his memoirs. Um, tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. Well, I think we have to be tough on Brexit and tough on the causes of Brexit, really. And that's the task for social democrats now. And we've got to recognize that the social democratic, dominant social democratic establishments in, in our four nations, with, with the exception of Scotland, oddly enough, or perhaps revealingly enough, um, have somehow betrayed the people that they were, supposed to, they were supposed to serve. And the question for us is, how can we put that right? I don't know the answer to that question. If you read this book, you will find out that I, um, most of the people contributing to it says, you know, well, the trouble with David Markman is he's got these lovely ideas, but he never tells us the answers. Um, there's something in that. But I think it is, but I really do think that this is where social democrats as a group have to somehow find a way of thinking out ourselves what is needed, and secondly, uh, find a way of um, mobilizing opinion uh, behind our position. And um, it ain't gonna be easy. Um, A long time ago, um, I think it was, probably Stanley Baldwin, Ken will know. Um, Stanley Baldwin said uh, it was criticizing the hard-faced men who did well out of the war. Um, I think we here could be described probably as the soft-faced people who did well out of globalization, have done well out of globalization, by and large. It's not to do with economic uh, inequality particularly, it's, it's to do with lifestyle, it's to do with uh, opportunities and so on and so forth. So, we well, I think that's probably all I've got to say, except for God's sake, what's happening now, today? What happened last night? And the, you know, Channel 4 News, this amazing, astounding chaos that Brexit has brought with it um, should surely jolt the opinion in this country, um, and particularly in my own country, in Wales, um, to realize that we are now on a cliff edge and we can't go on. It would be madness to continue as we are. (coughs) I don't think the idea of the people's vote solves everything. Um, Anthony Barnett has taught me more about all this than anybody else, and I'm so glad that I can see him here. Um, but uh, particularly, actually, you've introduced me to the uh, writings of, um, you know, The um, you know, uh, Long Revolution, Raymond Williams, um, whom you haven't mentioned in this book, but you should have done. Um, but I, uh, I think the... Uh, Anthony, at the beginning of this whole exercise, actually, I remember you were joined up with um, uh, Faroufakis, didn't you? With some kind of attempt to be standing for a reformed, democratic European Union. And do you know, um, most people that I talked about this, it was a brilliant uh, intervention you made, Anthony. It really was. Most of the people I talked to around where I now live, the the sort of established, if you like, the established uh, Remainers, thought you were crazy. You know, why are you admitting that there are these wrong things with the European Union? Don't you realise that you're playing into the hands of the other side? And that's been what's wrong, actually. Um, That's what's been wrong. And so, um, well, we've got to get together. We've got to persuade the public. We're not going to have to have the second referendum, I think, will have to happen, but it mustn't be a repetition of the first referendum. That's the most important thing. Um, And there's a danger that it might be, because people don't like to admit that they were wrong. I mean, they may know that they were wrong, but they don't like to admit it. But so, anyway, um, look, I better stop. I've talked for far too long already. But um, I suppose the challenge to us here, I'm assuming that we're mostly social democrats. You wouldn't be here if you weren't. Um, And you certainly wouldn't be clutching this wonderful book to your bosoms, and I hope you're doing that. Um, uh, We've got to admit, we've got to do some pretty tough rethinking, collectively um, and as 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 our separate nations too. Um, It's gonna be a long, hard battle I think we can win. I think we can win, actually. Uh, I am still an optimist, but uh, only just.
1: Thank you. Um, David, that was a very powerful call to political arms. I'm going to hand straight over to Hans to follow that with some brief opening remarks.
3: Okay. thank you very much, Anthony. And thanks to all of you for coming to this event, taking time out of your day to join us. And I want to thank especially Anthony, and also Phoebe Williams from the RSA for putting this event together for us. And a big, big thank you and acknowledgement also to Jeremy Nuttall, who's in the second row here, my co-editor on this book. This book was uh, one of those partnerships that was really 100 and 100 on both sides. And the two of us, I think we both really enjoyed it, but I couldn't have done it alone. Maybe you couldn't have done it alone either. It really took the two of us to kind of put together our backgrounds in history and politics and bring the contributors together for this volume. It was a three-year process leading to this, and we're excited. And David, I want to share with the audience a quote from you that goes back about 20, well, 21 years now. This was in your book, The New Reckoning. Oh, yeah. And it, I think it's a wonderfully prescient quote for the moment that we find ourselves right now. It's a question, as you say. Yeah, yeah. And,
4: questions.
3: and this is it. Uh, can Can the left and center, and for that matter, the non-fundamentalist right, that would imply a bunch of the Tories as well, then you say, trump the new tribalism. Isn't it wonderful that you use the word trump there in the the quote? Can everybody everybody trump the new tribalism with a tolerant, outward-looking alternative? And you ask, can this alternative teach society how to protect itself from fragmentation without turning to a modern version of the man on the white horse or the damnation spouting prophet. So at least from my American perch, this (laughs) quote is remarkably prescient. And you really foresaw, I think, in asking this question at the time that you did, that trouble might well be on the horizon for what was emerging as this era of neoliberalism. And if we think of neoliberalism as a cocktail of deregulation, privatization, and uninhibited trade, basically a global economy without a strong global democratic political system to check all of that economic power and, of course, the impact that that brings. You saw that there might be trouble coming, and I think you also saw that the far right, or what we might think of as right-wing populists, might be quicker than Social Democrats, uh, appealing to the public and selling an alternative to the public than Social Democrats. And the Social Democrats needed to be preparing to present a more coherent and appealing alternative to neoliberalism. And of course, Tony Blair and the the Third Way New Labor Party, and of course, Bill Clinton, and even Barack Obama in the United States didn't really deliver the alternative. I think you undersell yourself by saying that you don't have answers, or that you ask questions but don't provide the answers. Because I think if you read your writing carefully enough, there are there's a blueprint for answers. And Jeremy and I have really tried to highlight in this volume, at least in principle, what some of the answers might be. And we've also tried to ask the question, especially in the concluding chapter in this book, kind of two questions. that that cohere into one. One, does David's thought um, bring together some coherence? Because those of you that know David well know that he cuts across political philosophy, history, political economy, political institutions, even constitutional law. Does all of this cohere into some set of principles that can guide us in thinking about how to build a more just and sustainable societies? So is there a view of thinking that's Marquandism? And does social democracy offer an alternative to neoliberalism? So we argue in this last chapter that, that yes, there is, and that what we need for, say, a moderate yet visionary progressivism, that's Jeremy's phrase, in fact, that we need to rethink and redeploy elements of pluralism and republicanism. And I'll just briefly tell you what what elements of pluralism we're thinking about, and likewise for republicanism. And then we can draw this out perhaps further in the Q&A. So for pluralism, we're thinking about consensus building across rival factions, negotiation across different kinds of value systems, a readiness to adapt to and perhaps even foster nonconformity rather than stamping out differences, genuine power sharing between labor and capital in the economic arena, And also, a system of institutions. And this would not be the British state. It would, in fact, not be the American system. It would require institutional change in many many different polities. But political arrangements conducive toward federalism and the decentralization of power in the political arena, subsidiarity as well as federalism, and alliances across political parties. And then what kind of republicanism? Well, this is not just doing away with a monarch. This is about a way of life, about citizens Thinking and living, and really doing the work. Republicanism takes effort. It takes work, and it involves at its heart self-government by actively engaged citizens, motivated to speak out. As you said, the you know not all of us being soft, being hard-headed, and speaking out, staying involved, not just speaking out momentarily, but in a sustained fashion, and taking responsibility for the public good. And more than that, and I think some of the American constitutional framers realized this at least and tried to aspire toward it, holding out for a public good or common good that amounts to more than just the sum of the polity's constituent parts. And therefore, mediating short-term preferences narrowly defined with far-reaching interests and goals across space and time extending into future generations. Thinking not just from a global point of view, but also from local and global points of view ahead in time. Certainly, the problems we face with the environment fit into that. And this requires also public deliberation and a multiplicity of inclusive spheres and arenas with the potential to transform perspectives. And there are so many, of course, problems that can impede and forestall this kind of (laughs) pluralist and Republican democracy. But I would say there are reasons to take heart. Um, And among them, one that general publics around the world and I would say coming from East Asia, increasingly behind the West, in South Korea, there were literally over a million people in the streets of Seoul about two years ago, a year and a half ago, demanding the ouster of a corrupt president. I brought my children to that event. I thought, kids, we're not going to go there and scream, but we're going to go watch what democracy requires sometimes. And we're going to see people standing up for that. And that's just one example. I mean, there's actually a growing appetite in East Asia for social welfare states as well. The general publics, I think, do support social welfare provisions. I mean, in Korea, they're building up a national health insurance and trying to close the gaps within that. That's true for many East Asian countries. So there is room for building global consensus and domestic consensus on the value of social welfare provisions, social safety nets, public services, (laughs) sustainable environmental policies. And I think it's very important for us not to conflate voter exasperation with bad self-serving and corrupt politicians with a wholesale public rejection of social democracy. And the same applies for failed or inefficient policies, past or present. The principle of taming the market still enjoys some broad public validation, and that comes through in your writing over the years, as well as, I think, many of the essays in in the book. And also, in terms of um, David Goodhart's which I think is brilliant, but maybe misguided his, you know, sort of segmenting the public into somewheres (laughs) and nowheres, and that it implies that we have to choose which one we're in. And I've read some articles recently saying social democracies have to uh, basically side with the somewheres. I think he says anywheres, actually. Side with the somewheres, not the anywheres. I think that's very much a false choice, that that the the anywheres can be rooted and that in fact vast numbers of people around the world do think and live simultaneously as local, national, and global citizens and see themselves as members and participants of communities that cut across the boundaries of their respective countries. And then lastly, I think social democrats (laughs) or other progressives around the world Need to think about a way to get beyond the state-society divide. It's not just, you know, conservatives would say it's about civic virtue. That was David Cameron's position, but it's also about strong policies at the state level, and it's about citizens um, taking on political commitments for the long term. So I'll leave you with a quotation from the book that um, we've had that we have in the concluding chapter, I think, and or it might even be the intro. I'm not sure. But we say at one point in the book, and I think this captures a lot of David's thinking over the years as well, his Republican strains, ultimately in free societies, we citizens get the government we seek, regardless of whether the resulting collective of leaders and their decisions yield as the government we deserve. Thank you.
1: Mm, very good.
3: Thank you. Very good. <laughs> Neil.
5: Um, there is literally no living political actor who I would want to honour um, more than David Marquand. Um, he has had the most fantastic influence on my life and my politics. Um, and, and I sit here, and only in the first two rows in front of me, I've got Andrew Gamble, and I've got Ken Morgan, I've got Will Hutton, and I've got Anthony Barnett and, you know, and, 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 da- and David Owen. That's just the ones I can see from the lights, you know. And these are all great people, but they are not as great as David Marquand. Um, uh, <laughs> And he's contrary I, I mean, obviously, I literally wouldn't be here without him because this event wouldn't happen. But my politics would not have evolved in the way they have and developed in the way they have without being able to read and listen to um, David Marquand. He's had a profound effect on me. And there wouldn't be an organisation called Compass that i chair without him. I think he's had an amazing kind of eclectic life. He's lived the life of, of the public intellectual. And I think that's a really hard, tough life to lead. Because if you are a public intellectual, then you can belong to no one or nothing except what you believe is right. And David has moved and shifted as he is thought is right. And that's a really tough thing to do because you can go to the comfort zone, you can do the easy thing, you can be the tribalist, you can belong, you can, you know, as I say, stay in a comfort zone. And David has never, ever done that. He's shifted and moved as he sees fit, as he sees right. And that is a brave way to live your life. So it's not just the quality of his ideas and thinking, which I'll come back to in a bit. It's the way that he's conducted himself that has always impressed me, the way he's challenged himself um, even now in his his middle years, um, writing books, writing books, (laughs) challenging his own thinking, developing his own thinking. I think he's an example to all of us and he's certainly an example to me. Um, And I think we need his thinking more than ever. Look, th- this isn't just a kind of... Cr- this, you know, this isn't a crisis of social democracy. I think it's an existential crisis of social democracy. I'm not sure it's coming back, right? And, and I just want to kind of briefly go through the reasons of why it's, not, why it's probably not coming back and why we have to channel the values of social democracy into a new form of politics, of which David can be the, the guiding light. Look, it isn't a question of leadership. It isn't a question of bravery. is isn't a question of charisma. There is something fundamental happening to the underpinnings of social democracy. Everything that made social democracy strong in the last century is gone. Absolutely everything. The notion of, of class and class agency has gone. It's still there, but it isn't anywhere near as strong. The fordist systems of production, which enable us to you know, mobilise mass armies, mass industries and mass government, that's gone. The Soviet Union was a massive factor in the creation of post-war social democracy because the capitalists didn't want the Soviet-style revolution. And that had a massive impact on what they gave to the workers. Now, all of the stuff that underpinned and made social democracy strong is gone. And in its place, we have globalisation, individualisation, consumerisation, financialisation. It's not whether Jeremy Corbyn or Tony Blair or Gordon Brown or Ed Miliband or whoever comes next is a good or bad leader. They're standing literally on thin air. There's nothing beneath them to make them strong. And unless we realise that, we're going to keep going through these ever-decreasing cycles. I've just had a recent kind of round of European Social Democrats. The Greeks have gone, the Dutch have gone, the French have gone, the Scandinavians are struggling, hanging on. The Germans are about to go through the floor. They're polling on 14%. This is not... Yes, PD. They're polling on 14%. You've got Portugal as the only government in the whole of Europe, a small country, 5 million, particular circumstances, right? This is not a cyclical, cyclical thing. It's existential because the culture and technology no longer support social democracy. So what can, where can we apply the values of solidarity, equality democracy in the future, in that pessimistic analysis, where I get hope from, and I think it's where David does, and I know Anthony does from the RSA, we get hope from what's going on out there, because as the old state doesn't work, and as the free market doesn't work, people and organisations everywhere are finding different ways to do things, in your community, in your society, in in the, the new economy, everywhere, people are collaborating and doing social democracy from the ground up. The network society, the replacement of the factory, which was the old form of growing solidarity, is being replaced by a kind of sentiment which is based around the idea of Facebook, of the network society, the digital world where everyone talks to everyone, where everyone knows everything, where you can aggregate things so quickly and join people up and organize so quickly. That is the world of today. And that is the only world, the only world, we can't build it in any other place in which a kind of social democracy or something like it fit for the 21st century will be born. And it's happening and it's happening now in all sorts of places where people are caring, sharing, renewing, joining up, doing. They're being social democrats out there but they're doing it in the 21st century. and the the brilliance of David Marquand, is not that he tells us what the right policies are. He tells us how to behave in the 21st century. He tells us to be Democrats. He tells us to be pluralists. He tells us to have a dialogue. He tells us not to be tribalists, because in all of that complexity of the 21st century, we've got to behave in a different kind of way. The old social democrat that commanded and controlled and told people what was good for them and expected them to vote for them again is gone. The future will be negotiated and not imposed. And David Marquand tells us how to do a cultural politics fit for that era. Someone was mentioned earlier, Raymond Williams, the um, cultural theorist. Raymond Williams said that the, the test of a true radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. David Marquand has always made me think that hope is possible. I think politics is always about a journey. And I'll just finish on this, Anthony. I reprise, in my little chapter in the book, a conversation that I read between um, David and someone called Anthony Giddens. Um, uh, And and Anthony Giddens says, when we reach the social democratic society, and David pulled him straight up and said, we will never reach the social democratic society. The idea that the good society is one that only knows it's not good enough. is always a journey. And David, more than anyone, tells us how to prepare what to do, how to be on that journey to the better and better good society. So it, it, with all humility um, uh, and with all honour, I was delighted to be part of the book and I'd be delighted to be part of this panel today.
1: Oh, thank you, good Neil. Applause. Let's start off with some hope. Why not? Just for a, just for a break from, for, from things. And I'm going to take the sort of baton from Neil on this. Um, and... You know, th- th- there has been a relentless conversation since the eu referendum and obviously events in the u s and now in, in, a, in a variety of European societies around what post liberalism might, might look like and you could read into that sort of post social democracy in some in some respects so my, my question to the to the panel i 'll start off with with David on this one is where are the sources of of hope, of energy that could be seized on um, to start to define what a progressive or democratic republican post-liberalism might look like? So it's not necessarily surrendered to... Now, a couple of forces that seem to be quite prevalent. One is a sort of not moral, but moralistic version of, of post-liberalism, which, which sanctions and makes choices about <coughs> lifestyles and the way people should be. Or secondly, the sort of nationalistic post-liberalism, which obviously is, is, is full force in our own society, and particularly the US and Poland and elsewhere. So where are the sources of hope for something that's more akin to a progressive
2: post-liberalism? Well, that's a tough question. I think... Um... Well, I think it's bubbling up. Um, let, me ask, let me tell you something that my wonderful wife, Judith, has been doing in Wales. Um, trying to uh, run a project for a splendid organization there called the Institute of Welsh Affairs about renewable energy. And what she's found, I haven't been to all the meetings you've, you've done, of course, but what she's found is an enormous variation, actually, Um, In some places, the people involved are pretty passive and they don't do anything very much. But in other places, they are very active and they're very keen on the idea and they see the importance of it. So I think that does give hope. Um, And I think the um, same thing, of course, is happening. I mean, I'm a bit focused on Wales now because that's where I live and that's where I was born. And I feel very Welsh. I don't speak Welsh, I must admit. And I was a very bad rugby player, too. <laughs> yeah, a very bad singer, too. Yes, I can't sing in tune. I mean, so the Welsh national anthem is absolutely wonderful. But um, I'm afraid I can't do it. Um, I mean, I, you know, I can tell you what it is. But uh, anyway, um, the, uh, what was I going to say? I think the, the, this um, bubbling up is happening. I think. I think Neil is absolutely right about that. The only thing that um, I think one has to be, uh, how can I put it, a bit tough-minded about this, because yes, um, things can bubble up, and they are bubbling up. But you need to have some kind of connection, I think, between the bubbling up uh, and, if you like, the the institutions. Uh, of formal politics. Um, and that's not easy. And in fact, as in different ways, I think we've all been saying, the, the, the link between um, the people that formal politics are supposed to represent and the people who are actually running formal politics has been, has been fraying terribly. And that's one of the problems that we all face. And I think everybody here would say that. But um, you can't, as it were, only rely on the bubbling up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, because there's got to be some, I mean, there, has, there are institutions. I mean, my lovely friends in pont a who are so alienated from everything, um, were sort of
6: alienated
2: because the institutions, the formal institutions weren't representing them and weren't, um, w- weren't listening to them and weren't, but they have to be some formal institutions, don't they? I mean, we, can't, we haven't yet got to a kind of uh, anarcho-syndicalist uh, utopia where you can do without all of this and people will just get on and do everything themselves. There's got to be some kind of formal institution. And I suppose the real question, and problem for us here in this room, because <laughs> I detect that most of us are probably broadly social democratic in one way or another, um, is to how we can manage to do that. And I don't think, I don't think we found the answer. But we have got to, we have got to ask that question.
1: Uh, Neil, where do you see the hinge points between this people, places, localised energy and more formal
5: modes yeah. of, of change? Yeah. So what you've got is you've got these fireworks that are lighting up the sky all the time from civil society, from organisations, that are finding these new, innovative, collaborative ways of doing stuff. They light up the sky, you see them, you know, Citizens UK, flat-backed democracy, there's a thousand, thousand different examples. But then, because they're not made coherent, sustained, they take us back to darkness straight away. And the question of politics is, can you floodlight that future? Can we floodlight the 21st century? Can we make a coherent thing? <coughs> what we're talking about in in Compass is the meeting point between all of that horizontal energy and the role of the state, the vertical state, as facilitator, supporter, enabler, resourcer, legitimiser, champion for that politics. And then the, the dividing line between the two, the meeting point between the two is forty-five degrees, and we're, so we talk about forty-five degree change. The fault line through which we want this new society to emerge. What is the role of all of that bubbling up, emerging civil society, social entrepreneur activity, and what is the role of the state to support it, to sustain it, to build it? Because there are monopolizing forces both in the state and the corporate global world that want to crush it and privatize it, you know, etc. It won't happen on its own. It will just kind of blow out it leads the state to play a role and that i think is the central question of statecraft you know in the next you know decade or whatever how does it support and sustain all of this bubbling up energy
1: and taking a global perspective we're taking quite a, a a welsh and uk perspective in many respects do you see a global movement towards these hinge points if you like
3: oh, yes, 45 degree politics and i think uh globally too it's very important what david said about bubbling up and if things bubble up and you don't have the the democratic uh, strengthening and accountability of governing institutions, you get something like the Arab Spring. And yeah, of course, yeah, many yeah, of yeah, those yeah. revolutions looked exciting at the beginning, but they didn't necessarily translate into positive uh-huh. change. So what you need are people running for office, people founding NGOs that will monitor the government, and and in some cases pressuring for constitutional change within societies as, as well. And, well globally it's 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 tough to build that up in, say the global south countries, but I think in Latin I don't know, see the Latin America situation, the Brazil election, you know, yes, we can lament the outcome, but I also have students from Brazil who happen to be in Korea, you have university students all over the place, that said quite openly that they were really fed up with where the country had gone for yeah, the last yeah. fifteen years under people, you know, under the banner of progressivism. So that kind of ability to I mean the pendulum shifted there and now it takes time for the pendulum to shift back. And I think deliberative governance is also very important, integrating the voices of citizens into public decision making. It's interesting. There's been some social science research done by Cass Sunstein in the US Mm -hmm. that has cast a dark cloud over deliberative democracy, suggesting that when you bring different segments of the public together to deliberate, you don't necessarily get a transformation of preferences emerging through that deliberation, that at times people will just retreat and Mm You know, dig in their heels in their immediate positions. So there's a lot of work to do, almost laboratory work. And again, here's where organizations like Compass are really important, I think, trying to find new and innovative ways to bring different segments of the public together and talk and separate their preferences from what might be long-term interests and long-term goals and all of that. I mean, there are global conversations happening about that and local conversations that need to be connected to the global.
1: We've um, talked a lot about
3: the political and
1: democratic realm. I think the economic realm is critical in this, this conversation as well. And you know, a, a relentless theme of David's work is civic republicans and democratic republicans and how, what a struggle it is. It, it's arduous. It's hard. It takes place over time. It seems the relationship between citizenship and economic security is a critical one uh, for me. And I'd just be interested to get the panel's thoughts on how we might confront some of the economic questions perhaps looking at the sort of democratic civic spirit um, in a way that can
5: create greater space for civic virtue and citizenship. Neil. You know I'm going to say universal basic income don't you Anthony um, and, and I think it is a really interesting idea a, a, a one that we should examine um, and have a national conversation about because it's a big move and the reason I like it is because it opens up the idea of what the good life and the good society is it, it kind of begins to address the fact that we, you know, that we humiliate the people at the bottom of the income scale and make them jump through all of these bloody hoops. Um, uh, and the fact that our work, you know, the, the, you know the labour market just look, doesn't look to me like it's ever going to support, you know, one job in a life, five days a week, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I think it's exactly the kind of idea that social democrats should be examining, um, but they find it really culturally tough. They find it tough because, you know, it's called the Labour Party. You know, it's founded around the notion of work, you know. So if you're beginning to say there's a life where work isn't the central cultural identifier of your, of, of your purpose and meaning, etc., then they find it really challenging. But again, that's one of the reasons why I'm pessimistic about that old form of social democracy continuing in the future, because I don't think, you know, either... I, you know, we will have a world of full-time, well-paid work. And I'm not sure even if I want it. You know, I want a mix of different things for us to be able to care, create, learn, leisure, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. I think the world's
3: crying out for that kind of big idea and big shift. Thank
1: you. Hands.
3: Well, I'd second Neil's motion on universal income, and I'd add universal health care to this. And I even think in the United States that could be one of those issues that could genuinely spur a progressive revival. I think there's growing support for that, especially as Western societies age, even some East Asian countries are moving into... relatively older demographics, it's going to require those kinds of safety nets. So I'd say that. I think there really has to be a place for unions or if you reinvent unions into guilds or associations, much more worker voice is needed. We need to find ways to rediscover worker voice. And I think more needs to be done to break up monopolies as well. And that includes the tech sector. And I don't have the answers as to how to work that out. But there is a small number of concentrated the circles of power. Also, the media realm needs to be rethought. And that has, we need the media to have an impact on challenging economic power, not just reinforcing it, which is what you get when your dominant news organizations, at least in many countries, have very strong links to the biggest businesses in those countries. David, how do we bring republicanism into the economic sphere?
2: Well, let me tell you first um, what a, a book that influenced me enormously was by Richard Sennett. Yes. I think it was called A Corrosion of Character. Mm-hmm. And um, he described basically how people who had once upon a time used to make bread um, themselves, right? And cakes themselves. They did it. Um, They were now paid much more, but the machines did all the work. All they had to do was press buttons. And that was the corrosion of character. And I think that is now maybe we should be tougher with the, pardon, tougher with the um, notion that uh, the economy should be left to itself except when there are obvious public goods and things like that that only public institutions can provide. That's pretty well accepted. Even Adam Smith actually accepted that, uh, if you read The Wealth of Nations carefully. Um, But um, it's not a question of public goods exactly. It's a question of regarding the individuals who are working as autonomous agents with some who ought to have uh, a form of economy in which, um, in which their agency can be made real. And now, I think, the, I think the trade, I think Neil's a bit hard on the trade unions, oddly enough. What the hell is the name of this wonderful woman who's the head of it now? I forget. Frances O'Grady. Frances O'Grady. She's brilliant. She's brilliant. absolutely brilliant. Powerless,
5: but brilliant. Well, yeah, but okay.
2: But you know, you okay? Maybe she's powerless now. You shouldn't be so bloody pessimistic, Neil. Of all people, I know. No, no. I, I, th- I think. Uh, I think there is a, is scope for a. Radical change in the, in the way in which trade unions are organized and how they, prepare, how they behave. And if this bubbling up is happening, I think maybe... Yeah, exactly. That's what I think. So, we, but I don't know if that answers your question. I don't it think does. it does, really. It does.
1: Yeah, it okay. Does. It's such a big topic. and yeah. We've explore it for hours. We've um, got about 10 minutes left, so I'm going to go to the audience. I'm going to try um, and bring in a diverse range of questions. <laughs> <laughs> so make, please, um, please make my life easy in a way that you're not doing currently. Um, uh, and so um, we'll have short questions. I'm going to go for this gentleman first. And I'm waiting for...
0: Uh, thank, thank you very much. Uh, Keith Best, former Conservative MP for Anglesey and now currently the Secretary of the European Movement. Um, I, I gave a, a talk at the European Economic Forum earlier this year in Krynica uh, in Poland and uh, listening to one of the panels I was rather horrified to hear a young Hungarian minister from Orbán's party Oban's party, uh, say we are are the government of the people. We got more than 50% of the vote, so therefore the people's voice must be heard. And it seemed to me that he was describing not democracy, but Bolshevism. And I was extremely worried that there were none of the safeguards that one associates with with democracy about safeguarding minority rights and things of that nature. So my question is this, How, I mean, we've seen populism in this country. I mean, there are 48% of us who are feeling very disenfranchised at the moment. Uh, How are we going to try to stop populism masquerading as democracy as an easy answer to majoritarianism when, in fact, uh, we should be looking far more at an eclectic view of trying to accommodate different views and points of view within a democratic system?
1: questions ready to go in the middle there and maybe I'll we'll go for Kenneth Morgan yeah yeah um, I want to ask you've all kind of brought up in different ways the decline of the traditional social democratic parties in Europe and I want to ask you then where does the Labour Party fit into your analysis because if there's any party who's booked the trend it is the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn whether that is in terms of membership polling electoral performance, um, and even in terms of ideas as well, they're talking about stuff like UBI and four-day work weeks. I want to know how that fits into the general decline of social democracy. Thank you. And then Kenneth Morgan, I think. Well, uh, wait, for, wait, wait for the microphone, yeah. I'm
4: so sorry. That's okay. yeah. Sorry, is this right? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I'm very pleased to be here first, I think. David is my oldest friend. Uh, well, I'm, I'm two months older than David, and uh, I'm older. <laughs> but, uh, I, I, uh, but I wanted to say two things. Firstly, that I'm very glad that David has now gone back to Wales, and he says in what he writes in this book that he finds Wales and Scotland uh, particularly congenial, and there are very good historical and other reasons for that. Uh, all I'll say about Wales is that in 1920, we disestablished the church. And Wales, in many ways, is a country of disestablishment. It is a democratic part of the country in a way that extends very very widely. The other thing is that uh, I'm delighted to hear Neil's uh, encomia about uh, uh, David. Uh, I think David, uh, among many other things, writes about a word that you do not see particularly in books on English constitutional matters, and the word is citizenship, and more (laughs) particularly social citizenship. And uh, I think one of the problems with the Labour Party is that Uh, It took the wrong route. That is to say, there was a very rich tradition of the ILP, which was socialist, but very strongly concerned with communitarianism and harnessing citizenship. And the Labour Party went in, during the Depression years, of course, for a very centralized uh, way which uh, almost disempowered the citizen. So that perhaps is a question we might reflect on.
1: Thank you very much for that. Um, David, this question about where the Labour Party sits in this this, this analysis and where it might head next I think is an interesting
2: one. It's fascinating, and um, I find it extraordinary, really. Um, On the one hand, we have Corbyn um, voted for... clear. Well, I voted for him, actually. So did Judith, I think. Yes, we did. I mean, we were still then, uh, I think we were called registered supporters of the Labour Party. Uh, I'm not sure I would vote for him again, um, but there you are. I mean, I often vote for the wrong people. Um, <laughs> uh, my life is a sort of trajectory, a sort of full of uh, busted flushes, really, and people that I've, I've trusted, and they turned out uh, to be awful. But um, anyway, the, but, but the Corbyn phenomenon is, is extraordinary because he has clearly... Uh, attracted an enormous number of young people into the Labour Party. And this is a wonderful achievement. And he's buoyed up by these people. And yet, the young people who, uh, I mean, one of the big dividing lines in, on the Brexit uh, vote, of course, was between youth and age. Uh, and on the whole, young people were for uh, remain and older people were for, um, were for leave. And so Corbyn seems to be, he's clearly a a Eurosceptic actually, it seems to me. He's really an, I mean he's an old fashioned Benite who thinks that the European Union is a successor to the sort of capitalist club um, that Benites attacked way back in the 1960s and 1970s. What? I said, I said a Benite, no, not a Bevanite, my god, no, no, Bevan is one of my, if you read my chapter in that book, you'll see that an iron Bevan is one of my heroes. I was very shocked and disgusted when my father, as a member of parliament, voted for Gates instead of Bevan, as a matter of fact, if you want to know. Um, no, no, he was one of my heroes, sorry, I'm getting off my tread, but, but I mean, the, the thing about how, how can this be, what the hell is happening here? I mean. Uh, I, I just don't understand it, that these young people who are flooding into the party, and it's an extraordinary achievement, actually, that he's done that, uh, should be supporting a guy who is quite clearly a Eurosceptic, if not a Europhobe. Don't know the answer. Um, I will, one day or other, perhaps, the Labour Party will come to its senses and have a height attractor of youth Um, who is also a a Europhile. But uh, we're going to have to wait a bit because if you look at the Europhile uh, leaders, people in the the Labour Party leadership, they don't cut the mustard, really. I mean, Keir Starmer is a great guy, obviously, but he doesn't cut the mustard. I'm going to take one more question here from this this lady. here. We've got the, the microphone there.
6: Anne Dighton. Um, I wrote the puff, yes, you did. The <laughs> one day? of the I'm puffs, sure. um, yeah, but I yeah. unfortunately couldn't contribute a chapter uh, for family reasons. I've been uh, tweeting what's been going on here, and I've had an interesting tweet back, which I think I'd like to share with you, especially if the tweeter concerned is also watching, which he may well be, and he's a solicitor very much concerned with racial issues. And I tweeted that David Marquand said, we must be tough on Brexit and tough on the causes of Brexit. And he has tweeted back to me, and how on earth does that translate into everyday life? And I think actually that, that division between what we want and what we do is one that the middle ground has failed to address.
1: Neil, what are your thoughts? On what? <laughs> on translating <laughs> Brexit into everyday life, or, Opposition to Brexit in everyday life. Oh,
5: God, look, Brexit is, you know, is a a crisis that's been coming for 30 or 40 years. It's incredibly deep. It's about belonging, meaning, place, identity, you know, voice, you know... And, you know, one view is when you woke up on the, the, you know, the day after the referendum and you, you know, I'm presuming most of us here are part of the 48%, I'm presuming that I might be wrong, and you woke up and you thought, this is not my country, I don't understand my future, it's all going wrong, that's exactly how the 52% have woken up for the last 30 or 40 years, right? And unless we get that, we're never going to unravel this, okay? And, and, I, and I'm all for, you know, a, a, a second vote or whatever, it's got to be done in the right way. But, but, God, we've got to start having some empathy with the people who hit the panic button and said, I don't like the way the world's going. And this brings us back to the crisis of... of social democracy, the rise of neoliberalism, and the fact that we're going to you know, hell in a handcart, and David Cameron stupidly said, here's a way to kind of, you know, hit the panic button, and they did. And we have to listen to those people, and we have to come up with deep systemic answers about the economy, our democracy, culture, belonging, etc., and not just go, you're stupid people, have another, have another go at the question, because I tell you what, we'll lose it. We'll, we'll it. lose it without Absolutely. really having a deep, profound national conversation about where we're going and what we're doing.
1: Hands. Can we stop, going back to a, an earlier question, can we stop the populist, particularly the far-right and nationalistic populist, claiming the mantle of the citizens?
3: Yep. Anthony, that's a really interesting question. And there's another way of reframing that question um, by Chantal Mouffe, actually, political theorist, that's mm. written a book recently called For a Left Populism. And she's basically arguing that instead of trying to stop right-wing populism, that everybody else should try to become better populists themselves. I guess out-populists to the the right-wing populists. But the trouble with that, I think, is if if you would say, and David, you've written pieces really defining populism, we'd have to unpack that further. But a lot of times, populism implies something centralizing. There's a person at the top that's going to stand up for the little people. And the little people are not necessarily going to be speaking for themselves as full-fledged political agents. So I don't think a left populism is necessarily the way to go either. But the way to stop populism, I suppose, is to go right to the people that are tweeting back to Anne and saying, how is this relevant in everyday life? And come up with specific policy alternatives that will make a difference. Again, basic income and health care might be a couple of concrete ways to do that.
1: Okay, so one word answers. Final question. Can there be social democracy in the U.K. without membership of the European Union? Neil.
5: I don't know.
3: Hans. I'm, I'm not from here, so I probably shouldn't be <laughs> it. But I'll say, I'll say otherwise, yes. But maybe in a different name. Final no. word. I don't think so. Okay.
1: Thank you. Well, that was a wide-ranging conversation, incredibly rich, and we barely even touched um, the beginnings of this, of, of, of this book. So thank you very much. Um, to um, our, our guests, um, Hans, Neil, uh, and David, do pick up the book. Book is available, and our essay collection ideas for twenty-first century enlightenment. But mostly the book, but pick them both up. Thank you very much.
6: Thanks
0: for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.